there. Before we come to that passage, let us just pray that God will just enlighten our hearts to what we have to hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as that hymn uh, reminds us, Lord, these are ancient words. Words that have been passed down through history, Lord, um, but words that are ever true, that never lose their usefulness in our lives. And may we just uh, continue to be changed by your word that we read here. Amen. So, Stephen, if you go on to the next slide, I have a spelling mistake on that slide. I don't want anyone to see. Um, in 1941, air raid sirens blared over Belfast for the first time. The German Air Force were attacking. As you can see here, this is the aftermath of one of the raids. There you can see the, you can see the Albert clock in the background. Over the next month, four different raids were carried out, leaving a thousand people dead, with tens of thousands fleeing the city in the following months. And this is remembered as the Belfast Blitz. I don't think anyone here was around to remember that, so we'll remember it from our history books. And <laughs> this, the, the Belfast Blitz resulted in the highest casualty rates outside of London. It seems to have been forgotten from the pages of history. And one thing that made it so disastrous was that Belfast was not prepared for the war. It was felt by the government and the ministers that Belfast was safe from attack from German planes. They felt the German base in France was far too far away that the planes couldn't physically reach Belfast in order to attack them. Um, as a result, the city was largely unprepared. The city had actually got lots of spotlights in which they could use to find enemy planes in the night sky, and they sent most of them back to London because they thought, we don't need it here. They thought Belfast was safe from the war, and as a result, they were completely unprepared for the war they were in. So as we come to um, chapter 6, to this final paragraph of this book to the Ephesians, this is what Paul wants to ensure. He wants to ensure that this church is prepared for the war that they are in. They need to be prepared for battle. Paul wants this church to be ready with their fighting boots on, not lying back with cozy spiritual slippers. Um, if we remember this, the Ephesian church, they lived as a minority in a city full of the worship of other gods. Uh, at this time, Christians were actually called atheists because they didn't believe in the pantheon of the Roman or Greek gods. They only believed in one God. This was a church under siege from pagan culture, from pagan ideas. So as Paul begins this final passage of his letter, there are certain words as we scan through it that are repeated. There are certain words Paul wants ringing in this church's ears as they hear it. Notice how similar words are repeated throughout this passage stand firm, stand against, withstand, stand your ground, and stand firm again is used. Paul is using the imagery of war. Like any classic war film, when the general rallies his troops on the eve of battle ahead, 
Um, here we have Paul putting out the rallying call to these Christians. But it is not for the battle ahead that Paul is rallying them for. It is for the battle they are already in. Paul's command to them is for them to stand their ground, to stand firm, to stand firm in the Lord and his mighty power, as it says. But if this church is to stand firm, they need to know a few things. What does an army need to know if it is to fight and if it is to stand firm? Well, there are a few things that need to know. The first thing is, an army needs to know the reality of their war. Paul, at the start of this passage, he gives this church their operational briefing, as it were. He outlines the reality of the battle they are in, of who the enemy is. Uh, If you have the Bible there, read with me from verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul tells the Ephesian church, and us by extension, that our battle is not against flesh or blood. We are not fighting against mankind. Instead, we need to see our enemy as a spiritual one. The battle we are engaged in, as the verse says, are against the schemes of the devil, against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. When we read verses like this about spiritual forces and cosmic evil and cosmic powers, it maybe makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe what comes to mind is certain, certain groups um, that you know, maybe overemphasize the, the spiritual nature of this world that uh, will take verses like this and over-exaggerate them. Um, that exaggerate battles with spiritual forces in a way that is unhealthy, in a way that makes it seem more commonplace, um, which I don't think that is right or good. But I think in a modern world, we can fall onto the other side of the spectrum, maybe unknowingly. We can completely disregard spiritual forces as not being real, as not being influential which, again, I don't think is right. I think we need to see spiritual evil as a reality. Why? Because Jesus and his apostles saw it as a reality. Look at what Paul says here, the schemes of the devil, rulers, authority, cosmic powers. When Jesus was on earth, um, you know, we read in the Gospels, Jesus came into contact with spiritual forces. He drove out demons. He, you know, did other things. And he also, when he prays for his disciple, he prays for protection against the evil one. So Jesus and his apostles viewed spiritual forces as a reality, and so should we. Now, I don't think we have time to look into how this all works. And also, I don't really think the Bible 
gives us the mechanics of how spiritual evil works in this world, but we have to have an understanding that there are spiritual forces, there is spiritual evil outside of what we experience in our five senses. And they are opposed to the work of God and the work of his people in this world. Now, this all sounds a bit scary, maybe a bit creepy, a bit Halloween-y. Um, now, while these spiritual powers are real, it's important to note that we as Christians, we don't have to be afraid of them because Jesus has already defeated them. These spiritual forces have already been bound by Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus, uh, in his death and resurrection, took away any real power that they had. The decisive battle in the spiritual war has already been won. As we live our lives now, all we are dealing with are little skirmishes until evil is finally defeated. So that is our briefing of our, on our enemy, of the reality of our war. Now we'll look at our equipment. Because any army needs to know the equipment with which they're fighting with. They need to know how it protects them. They need to know how to use it in the battles. Now, many of us will have, will have read this passage in Ephesians before. We will be familiar with the helmet of salvation, with the breastplate of righteousness, with the belt of truth. We are maybe over familiar with this. We maybe miss how great this armor is. Um, in the book, The Lord of the Rings, the main character, Frodo, has a special armor. He has special chainmail that is made of a material called mithril. And until part of the way through the book, he is unaware of the true value of the armor. It is only when a conversation happens where someone says, this material, mithril, long ago used to be 10 times the price of gold. And in fact, now the cost of it is practically incalculable. As they say this, Frodo realizes that this chainmail that he has been walking around with is possibly the most valuable thing on earth. And, he, and it says he suddenly becomes aware of the weight of it. Frodo consciously becomes aware of the armor of the armor's weight only when he realizes its worth and its value. He feels the weight of it. So how heavy is the armor of God to us? Are we aware of its weight, of its value, of its significance? Hopefully, as we leave this morning, we will feel the significance of this armor. Um, there's a trend at the moment um, on social media, I don't know if anyone has seen it, where lots of men are being asked about how often they think about the Roman Empire. Um, apparently, most men think about the Roman Empire at least once a week. And um, here, this is Paul thinking about the Roman Empire. Now, obviously, it's a lot easier for Paul. He was in the midst of a Roman Empire. Um, we imagine Paul, he's in prison at the moment, probably looking up at a Roman guard, and he comes up with this analogy about the armor of God. Um, and while there is some truth to that, I don't think that it, 
that is the reality of it. I don't think Paul is just sitting there looking at a soldier and think, there, there's a good analogy for, for this letter. Because let's not forget, Paul really knew the Old Testament. He knew it really, really well. And Paul has not plucked these items of the armor um, from thin air. Rather, he is picking up on ideas and themes in the Old Testament, um, especially from the book of Isaiah. Um, throughout Isaiah, we find God dressing himself or dressing his messianic king in armor. Um, look at some of the verses from Isaiah. It should be on the screen. Um, from chapter 59, um, it says, He that is the Lord put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Isaiah the prophet in this passage envisages God arriving as a kind of warrior, arriving to rescue his people dressed in righteousness and salvation, the very thing he will accomplish for his people when he comes. Or look at this second uh, passage from chapter 11. In Isaiah it says, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the word faithfulness is the same Greek word as truth that is used by Paul in, in Ephesians. Faithfulness will be the sash around his waist. In Isaiah, God dr himself dresses in armor as a kind of warrior to come and rescue his people. Dressed in righteousness. So in Isaiah, we have these prophecies of this messianic king that are, you know, throughout a few sections of, of the book. And this messianic, messianic king, he will also come, also dressed in armor, to save God's people and to bring God's rule on earth. Now, for anyone that knows, the book of Isaiah is written centuries before Jesus. But Jesus is the messianic king Isaiah is talking about. Jesus is the king that rescues us. This armor Paul is alluding to in Ephesians is Jesus's armor. Jesus comes down dressed in the armor of salvation. Jesus battles Satan, death, and sin through his faithfulness and righteousness. And he is triumphant. Satan, death, and sin are defeated on the cross and in Jesus's resurrection. So notice what Paul is implying by telling us to put the armor on. If we understand this analogy correctly, it means we get Jesus' armor. We share in Jesus' victory. Because as Christians, we are united to Christ. We are united in such a way Jesus gives us his armor. That is what Paul is getting at. If you remember back to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that we inherit every spiritual blessing in Christ. So as Christians, we are given the gift of Jesus' armor so we can stand against the evil in this world. But how do we put on God's armor? How do we take it up? Simply, we clothe ourselves and who Jesus is, we put on Christ. 
Look at what these items resemble again, if you scan your eyes down them. We have truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. These are all phrases we use to describe the good news of Jesus. In Jesus, we see ultimate truth. In Jesus, we are viewed as righteous. In Jesus, we have the gift of faith. In Jesus, we have salvation. Through Jesus, we who once were enemies of God are now at peace with him. Jesus, who is revealed in the word of God, who, if you read John chapter 1, is the word of God. As I stand here, I have intentionally used the phrase, the good news of Jesus. Because as Christians, this is what we call the gospel. Gospel means good news. And I think we use the word gospel easily in church. We assume everybody knows what it means, but I don't want to assume that. So when I say we need to put on Christ, when I say we need to clothe ourselves in the gospel, what do I mean by the gospel? The gospel is this, that God is infinite, holy, majestic, greater than we could ever think or imagine. And mankind, we are created in God's image, created to reflect God, but mankind rebelled from what God intended him to be. Mankind has rejected God. We have distanced ourselves from God. We have alienated ourselves from our creator. There is a huge gap between holy, perfect God and flawed, sinful man. But God steps across the gap. Jesus, God in human form, comes to save humanity. He comes to save humanity. He dies on the cross. Jesus becomes sin for us. Why? To allow man to have a relationship with God again. The good news is we who were far from God can come close again because of Jesus. There is a great exchange that happens when we believe in Jesus. Our sin our sin is taken on by Jesus and he gives us his righteousness, his perfect life. But the good news gets even better. We are lifted out of the mess we are in. Then God gives us more than we deserve. He adopts us into his own family. And when you're in the family, you inherit everything. This is what we need to remind ourselves of every day. Jesus needs to be the obsession of our hearts if we are to stand against the powers in this world. We need the good news of Jesus every day. We need to constantly be reminded of the beauty of Christ, the amazing work he accomplishes through his death and resurrection. That is how we stand against sin, Satan, and the powers of this world. Because no matter the schemes of Satan, no matter our sin, no matter the darkness in this world, when we look at the gospel, we are reminded of what God has done in our lives. 
that Satan, sin, and powers, they can't do anything to us. They have no power because anything of true worth, of true value is wrapped up in Jesus and nothing can take us out of Jesus' care. William Gurnall was a 17th century minister. He wrote a whole book on the passage we're looking at today. Um, the book was entitled, The Christian in Complete Armor. And in the book, it says this. If you go to the next slide, it says, we, we must not confide in the armor of God, but in the God of this armor, because all our weapons are only mighty through God. Let me read that again. We must not confide in the armor of God, but in the God of this armor, because all our weapons are only mighty through God. The armor of God makes us reliant on God. It is something we are equipped with, not something we come up with ourselves. That is why in verse 18, Paul talks about prayer. In verse 18, it says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. As the quote on the screen says, we confide in the God of the armor. We confide in God through prayer. To continue the battle analogy, prayer is like radioing in air support. We are reliant on God to equip us. And not only us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to equip his church with his, with his armor. To be able to withstand as a body of believers, God give up, gives us the privilege to pray for our needs, but also the needs of others. Coming to God, knowing that on our own, we are defenseless. That we are dependent on him for everything we need. That in order to stand in the spiritual battles of this world, we are reliant on God for his strength. So we know who our enemy is. It is not flesh and blood, but cosmic and spiritual powers. We know that we are equipped to stand against these forces uh, in God's armor. God himself and the person of Jesus being brought into our lives by the Holy Spirit. And we are reminded that we are dependent on God, on the God of the armor for everything we need. So as we come to the end of this letter, with Paul's message to stand firm, reliant on God, sometimes I wonder what kind of impact this letter to the Ephesians had in this area over the first and second century. Because if we learn from history, this area of the world in the first few centuries was quick, a big wave of persecution came in place quickly. And I wonder, did the early Christians, did they read this letter and were they encouraged to stand firm? I wonder, have you ever heard of a man called Polycarp? Polycarp lived in kind of the next town over from Ephesus. He was probably born around the time this letter was written. He lived in the town called Smyrna. Polycarp was a hugely influential person in the early church. 
He was potentially the last person alive to have personally known the Apostle John. He was one of his disciples. He was the, the kind of the leader of the church in Smyrna, the, the next town over from Ephesus. And as an old man, Polycarp, the leader of this church in Smyrna, is caught up in persecution by the authorities. When he's arrested for his faith, he is found praying for God's will to be done. Polycarp is he's brought in front of the, the Roman authorities, the pro-council, and he's asked to recant his faith, to deny Christ so he can be free. And he replies with this. Eighty-six years have I served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my Savior and my King? It is unthinkable for me to turn from what is good and turn to evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteous. Polycarp was martyred for his profession of who Jesus was. Here we see him standing firm at the end. But look at what allows him to face death. It is his personal relationship with Jesus. It is who he knows Jesus to be, the Lord of his life, the King, the one who has saved him. Polycarp is standing, facing death, and he's protected in the knowledge that these powers can do nothing to him, even if they kill him. He rests on the hope of eternity, where he will be changed, where the shackles of sin are finally released, and he will be inherently righteous. And he prays when he's arrested that God's will will be done. Polycarp is secure in his armor, and the knowledge that Jesus is looking after him, even in life's toughest battles, even through death itself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks today. May it continue to impact and transform our lives. Lord, we pray for us as a church. May you arm us. May you equip us with the whole armor of God. Help us to know the truth of the gospel. Let us realize that we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. That we have been given the gift of salvation. Help us to rely on your word, the Bible, as our primary means to stand in this world. In doing so, give us faith. Faith in the knowledge of who you are and how you work. Give us faith to know that no matter the trials of life, no matter the present darkness, that you are by us, shielding us. That you are working for our good and your glory. May we rely on you in all things. May we be people who go easily to you in prayer because we are aware of our need. Help us to be people who build our lives upon the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And thank you for Jesus, our Savior and King. 
Help us to love Jesus more. And as we love Jesus more, may we love others more as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.